everyone, and welcome to MLS Assist, a podcast created to give insight into the tactical side of Major League Soccer. I'm your host, Joe Lowry, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jordan Angeli. Jordan, how you doing hold up out there in Colorado? I'm doing all right. You know, I think that gives you a lot of time to do all the things that you've been putting aside, right? What have you been what have you been up to? What have you put aside that now you've got to do? Oh, I've been playing a lot of piano recently actually. I pulled Ooh. I pulled the piano back out again where I might not have had as much time for that before. We've dusted off the keys. I've been playing a little bit. What about you? What wait, before we just switch quickly. I got to talk <laughs> more about the piano. What are you playing? Are you a really good pianist? Like can you play big time songs um i mean with practice i can play whatever quote unquote big time songs probably i've played for a long time i started out when i was when i was really young so it's definitely been a fixture of my childhood and now i'm kind of digging it back out again trying to to shake off the rust and to get back into it so it's been fun i've enjoyed it okay i'm gonna have to think of a song i need you to learn to play (laughs) maybe the mls anthem i don't know Hmm, just wow Wow, you might need a whole orchestra to do that, though. Yeah, I'll have to hire some people. Maybe I'll get some friends who I know who can play various instruments. I think that <laughs> that actually might need to happen this quarantine. No hey. commitment, but hey. that would be a lot of fun. Right. Jordan, what about you? What have you been digging out over this quarantine? I've been doing a few different things. Um, I have another podcast where I help people through injury recovery. So I've been recording some podcasts for that, working on some stuff with my uh, company, the ACL Club. And um, I've been writing a book for the last year, Joe. So a lot of time trying to get myself to read through everything that I've written and get that all organized and stuff like that. So and I also am cleaning out my garage at my house, which is not the most fun thing. I was going to say, as fascinating <laughs> as the garage sounds, what, do we get a spoiler on what this book is about, at least the topic, or is that is that secret for now? Yeah, I can tell you. No, no, no. It's, um, it's just about how challenges in life end up being some of our best moments, how they teach us the most about ourselves. That's cool. I'm looking forward to reading that one day. So that hopefully should give you enough motivation. My backing alone should be enough to get you through that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll be uh, super focused today and working on my book then. <laughs> perfect. I think that's perfect for you. On today's show, we're not going to be looking at Jordan's book. We're not even going to be listening to me play the piano. We are going to be looking back at the 1990s. On today's show, we're going to look at the first season of Major League Soccer and comparing some of the wacky on-field action to the Major League Soccer that we see today. So, Jordan, you and I went back and watched a couple of games from Major League Soccer's first ever season all the way back in 1996. We watched San Jose's 1-0 win over DC United in the opening game of the season, and then we watched DC United's 3-2 extra-time comeback win over the Los Angeles Galaxy in the first ever MLS Cup. So Jordan, are you ready for this MLS history lesson? I guess I, I'm as ready as ever because this was wild. It was. And I think that's really our first main takeaway is there were so many crazy and random things in these opening games that you and I had the chance to sit down and watch that our listeners can watch as well. We'll make sure we put out links for those two games on Twitter and hopefully in the show notes as well. This was crazy. There were so many idiosyncrasies, so many wacky moments in these matches. A couple of my favorite things, the most obscure things were the clock ticking down from 45 in each half, not counting up. We never saw the number 90 on the screen. The referee would blow the whistle right as the clock kind of ran out and hit zero. That was one thing for me. The other thing was just a crazy broadcast, right? We saw advertisements for all sorts of throwback things, Fuji film, and we saw Jay Leno on The Tonight Show at halftime, Alexi Lawless, not an advertisement, but Alexi Lawless, a young Lawless. There were so many of these fun, wacky things to look back on. 
Oh my gosh, the broadcast in general just cracked me up. And also, I think just reminded me how far we've come and how soccer was such a new thing at that level to be broadcasted in the United States. And there were very few people that were doing it. And so as a broadcaster, I was listening to a lot of the things that we were, were mm-hmm. being said. And man, I was cracking up at some of them. And um it just made me also think about what people are going to think about my broadcast in 25 <laughs> years. Like, wow, what was this girl talking about? Um, those things were funny, but I also think that the the amount of mullets. Oh, and the mullet was high. Dudes, the mullet per person ratio was so wow, high. Super high. Um, but though the mullets, I don't think topped the side by side still shots that we got of Bod Bradley next to Bruce Arena with their baby faces and their baseball caps <laughs> sitting on the bench coaching DC United. Like that was pretty nice too. I love those so much. The mullets were fantastic. Shout out to Echeverry and Doyle in that in the inaugural game especially. But yeah, the shots of the young coaches of Bruce and Bob sitting next to each other looking young and fresh. But those two players, those two coaches, excuse me kind of heading up this origin of Major League Soccer. And then on the field as well, in in the yeah. MLS Cup final alone, we had five current Major League Soccer coaches involved either coaching or playing that game. Bruce Arena, as you mentioned, Jordan. Bob Bradley, another one, the head coach and assistant coach, respectively, of DC United. Then you had Chris Armas in central midfield for the Galaxy, now the New York Red Bulls head coach. Greg Vanny at left back for the Galaxy, and Robin Frazier, the Galaxy's left-sided center back. I mean, it really was a whole congregation of future-slash-current MLS coaches. Yeah, I loved it. I I loved seeing that, and also, I uh, didn't he didn't get any minutes, but Steve Rommel on the bench, he was one of my uh, coaches growing up. So it was cool to see him on the sideline getting ready to come in, trying to come in that final game. Um, it's just for me, like so many nostalgic things, because I remember going to games in that inaugural season at Mile High Stadium, the old Mile High Stadium, uh, the football stadium here in Colorado, and just uh, thinking it was so cool that these guys were playing soccer in front of me. And I ended up being coached by a lot of Rapids players through my years. And just to see them play, like to watch these games back and look at it from a totally different viewpoint now is just really cool to see where it all came from. And definitely looking back on these matches, you know, almost 25 years into the future, it was hard to notice a whole lot just because of the way the broadcasts were structured. We kind of talked about the commentary and some of those things, but I've never been so happy, Jordan, to see a zoomed out camera angle in my entire oh my life gosh. than about two thirds of the way through the, the inaugural MLS game. So much of the time, I swear we were looking at either one player, four players, or four players max. It was, it was really tough to watch for a lot of it, but that on its own made it its own little unique challenge. I was yeah, unique challenge is correct. Like, how do you know what kind of formation or what tactics these teams are trying to implement when you're just seeing like, tackle after tackle 1v1 battle after 1v1 battle I think it was really challenging to try to see what was going on in the whole field because we were only given that that one close-up angle so um, it definitely makes you thankful for what we get now and a little bit more zoomed out a little bit more scope of the field when we're analyzing games that we watch back and I remember MLS Cup a couple years back Portland playing at Mercedes-Benz against Atlanta and Fox had their camera angle zoomed in a little too far to people's liking and myself included like I want to see the field but people kind of lost it on Fox at that time just because of the broadcast and then thinking back all the way to the 90s looking at what we had then versus even that Fox broadcast it's no comparison right there's no contest we are definitely blessed with the angles that we're able to see now. 
you know, I think in the the opening game, at least, we at least got to see um, starting lineups. In the second game, I wasn't able to see the starting lineups for that MLS Cup. So it's hard to, to know who's starting where, who's playing in what position. It, it, when it, the angle and the camera is so zoomed in, you're constantly trying to figure out where people are playing because in a formation, that's always adapting, right? It's always changing. It never it never really looks like a 4-4-2 or a 4-3-3 cuz there's always a player doing a defensive movement or an attacking movement or some kind of cover so um that was one of the hardest things for me to try to figure out is like what are these teams trying to implement here so i actually wrote a story on this first ever mls game for the athletic and kind of my job that the editors tasked me with was to try to find tactics in the midst of the close-up broadcast angles and the chaotic style of play. And so I really did focus on that game, trying to to parse through and find some of those things. So it was possible, even with the close-up angles. I, I think I came to the conclusion that in that opening game, the San Jose clash against DC United, San Jose was back in a 4-4-2. They were willing to, to allow DC to push forward with their pressure. Bruce Arena coaching DC United had his team in what looked like a 3-5-2. It was always morphing, like you said, Jordan. But that's why I was so happy to see that one zoomed-out broadcast angle, because I could finally pause it, look up, find out which pixels were which, and then kind of go from there and see which players were doing what jobs. So it's not that the coaches deployed these teams without tactics, but between the, the energetic, physical style of play and just the quality of the broadcast and of, of television at that time, it made it certainly more challenging to notice team-specific tactics. It was difficult in the in the MLS Cup game as well. I think DC United were alternating between maybe like a 4-4-2 and a 3-5-2 and then yeah, maybe the Galaxy kind of maybe the Galaxy were in a 4-4-2. It was it was certainly was challenging to tell at the very least. I felt like Agus for DC United center back played almost like a sweeper. Like he would that's kind of when it would look like a 3-5-2 is when one of the central defenders for uh, DC United steps a little bit up into the midfield. And then Agus is like almost a sweeper, just trying to clean up anything in behind. And um, that is a term I haven't used in so long. It's <laughs> a, a stopper and a sweeper. Yeah. And Robin Frazier, even for the Galaxy in that second game as well, as that left-sided center back, so often he was the one cleaning up danger behind the Galaxy back line. And so we definitely saw some more aggressive center back play than I think we're used to now. Teams were more willing to have one defender kind of clean up the damage behind the back line and then carry the ball forward. Agus especially was was the man for that. And San Jose had a center back in their opening game as well, who often had some marauding runs forward into midfield. That's something we're starting to see more and more now. We're seeing center backs break that first line of pressure and then carry the ball forward. But that's not usually as a sweeper or anything really resembling a sweeper. It's more just used as an offensive tactic rather than a, a defensive one. And so that was very mm-hmm. interesting to see guys like Agus, guys like Frazier, who who now have had, especially Frazier, who have some sort of influence in modern soccer, play that role and maybe see how that influences their usage of center backs in Major League Soccer today. I found it really interesting in just when you're watching both of these games play out and you're talking about center backs, so you're talking about like, what did you see tactically from these teams? How did they want to attack? How do they want to defend? Well, um, attacking wise, Joe, I feel like one of the things I saw was it was very direct. Like 
in 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 the sense that there was little possession. I would say in the the final game, much more possession, right? Because the teams have a whole entire season Absolutely. to get and establish who they are as a squad. Um, and there was even more possession in that final game, even though the field was like a oh, puddle. Oh, so fest. rainy! It was like <laughs> they were playing a in a tsunami. Fest. Uh, the, like I don't know how they connected more than four passes. Like even that should be applauded because of how many puddles were on the field. But one of the things I noticed is there were very few like possession oriented movements, passes in the center of the field, or even in the defensive third, even to just play the ball back to keep possession and restructure and reorganize your team. Uh, Instead of playing the ball back to keep possession, I felt like it was always a ball forward trying to look to, let's say it's DC United, they're looking for Jaime Moreno uh, as that target center forward or trying to get the ball into the channels to just run onto, basically trying to pin the other team, LA Galaxy in this case, back into their defensive third and just turn turn them over higher up the field. It almost felt like, um, I, I mean, to me, it was just too direct, right? And a lot of the actual play in the soccer that we love was was lost in that direct those direct moments that's a huge difference between then and now i completely agree with you on that one jordan there was so much direct play almost unnecessary direct play Mm -hmm. because it's not that there's anything inherently wrong with playing the ball long if that's where the space is but there were a few sequences uh, when i took down in my notes was about midway through the first half of the mls cup gory who was dc united's left left back or left wing back depending on the match depending on the moment he had a throw in in dc united's half on the left side and he had Richie Williams who was playing as a central midfielder for DC United completely wide open in the middle of the field Richie Williams was checking his shoulder he was showing to the ball he was doing everything you wanted from an outlet and instead of playing the ball to Williams for him to control it in midfield Gory just threw it down the line into kind of a clump of players on the left wing for basically no reason other than to just believe that his guys were going to win the second ball the third ball the fourth ball instead of taking the easy outlet pass into midfield they would just play it long almost needlessly it's interesting that you mentioned that because that was one of the biggest takeaways I had as well. And I know that you've written about throw-ins. I think that there was a handful, maybe five throw-ins in both of these games that actually were successful for the team throwing mm-hmm. the ball in. Yeah, it was very, very few. It's almost like throw-ins were kind of taken for granted. And we're definitely seeing less of that now. So, yeah, that was one of the things I, I definitely noticed is when most of the teams, like even in that inaugural game, San Jose is a team that had players in their central midfield that they could build through. And um, they had players that we would all recognize their names go um, as players that played in MLS for a while, yet they're playing all the way up to the forwards, bypassing um, who they could really keep possession with their San Jose, especially their mode of action was an up back and through try to find the target player drop it to a midfielder and then just play it through don't even care who who it is um, who's running for it just like trying to get it in behind the defense and turn the defense to run towards their own goal which is fine at moments but it's not something that is successful time and time again no and that was certainly san jose's go-to strategy so much of their offensive game plan was finding eric winalda in space behind dc united's three-man back line and at times it worked, right? They eventually found it for the go-ahead goal late late in that inaugural game when Alda got the ball on the left wing, dribbled down, nutmeg Jeff Agus, and then scored it. But a lot of times that was unsuccessful, right? If, if they were a little bit better at choosing their moments to use that up, back, and through combination or to find, you know, 
Winalda in space behind the back line with a long ball. San Jose would have threatened way more in that game than they actually did. Instead, a lot of their attacks were simply rushed. They were booting the ball downfield, which allowed DC United to collect the ball. Then DC didn't really do themselves a lot of favors either. We've talked about that a little bit already, but they had the players. This is what gets me the most. They had the players to play a better style of soccer. Yes, the two games we watched were the inaugural match and the waterlogged final. But when you have John Harks patrolling central midfield, you have Richie Williams, you have Marco Echeverri as the number 10 in this midfield. You have the center backs who can play out from the back. Agus and Pope especially are the two big names. Gori was a really technical player on that left side of, of defense and then even moving up into attack. They clearly had the guys to play a little bit more and to have just a little more composure and time on the ball. They really could have broken down San Jose. They could have broken down LA Galaxy a lot more than they actually did in these games. Did you notice too, uh, like for long periods of time in both games, like when I say long periods, like five, 10 minutes where it was um, basically like the, the field was split in half and it was like the defense for DC United against the offense for San Jose. And then the other half of the field was like the defense of San Jose (laughs) and the offense of DC. And it was like, they were just almost playing like a tennis match, like just kick the ball forward. We'll let our four up front try to go against the five back for the other team. And like, just go back and forth with those like two straggling midfielders who are like trying to do the work back and forth and I was like those poor guys like never touch the ball have to do all the running it was tough it felt like you're watching a table tennis match like table tennis you know actual tennis one of those your head first of all as a viewer your head is going back and forth side to side over and over again in this game watching the camera shift side to side and that's because these teams are so content to just play long clear the danger up to their attacking players against the other team's defensive unit and try to win those battles from there there was not a lot of cohesive midfield play at all in these matches it almost like subdivided into two separate games which it goes to your point that you were just making, Joe, and with DC United, especially like I feel like Echeverry is a player we all hear about, right? Is a player that we all know if we've been watching any kind of MLS or talking to any kind of MLS, like he is a legend in Major League Soccer. And I felt like he just got lost in both of the games. Like when he had the ball, you were like, oh my gosh, what is he going to do? But it was so few and far between because he didn't do that a little bit of work to get back maybe defensively a little bit. So then he wasn't in the pockets of space where he could actually create. And and DC United didn't try to find him in traditional ways that we would think about now. Like when yeah. we think about a number 10 or an attacking midfielder, because we don't see a lot of true number 10s now in Major League Soccer or in World Soccer today, we think of them finding little pockets of space in possession, receiving the ball on the ground, and then turning and playmaking in the final third, or in the attacking half at least. DC United's approach to getting the ball to Echeverry, and then LA Galaxy's approach to getting the ball to their number 10, Cienfuegos, in the cut final as well, was about a lot more of play the ball to the forwards, have them knock it down, or yeah. just have the, the ball sort of fall out of a clump and end up at your number 10's feet. And that's just, I don't think statistically that's as reliable of a method to get your attacking playmaker touches on the ball. Like, I don't think that's statistically, yeah. I don't think that's statistically the best method for for getting your number 10 touches. And yet it's what we saw DC United go back to over and over again, and the Galaxy a little bit as well. It's definitely not the best method. And, you know, I think that's one of the things we start to see. And I'm sure if we looked at the next year um, cup final or watch these two teams the next year, we would see like evolution in the style of play and how um, 
these big time players got on the ball. But, um, you know, you would have thought for DC United being a team that won and Echeverry did he, you know, all three of DC United's goals were from what? Yeah, we're from Echeverry with playing the ball inside with his left foot. From a set piece. Set pieces. All three, all three goals. And I'm like, wow, if you're LA Galaxy, you are kicking yourself because not do you give, give up one set piece goal, but three to lose the game after being up two goals. Like, oh my gosh, that is not good. Um, and so Echeverry had a lot of, like did a lot on the actual goals, but in the run of play, I don't know about you, but like I thought Jaime Moreno was their best player. He calmed the game down. He held it. He allowed players to come and play with him. He dribbled out of situations if needed. And, you know, I would have thought, okay, they DC United won the game. They have Echeverry. He was the player of the match. Like, I would have given it to Jaime Moreno. Absolutely. I think Echeverry got involved a little bit more in the opener against San Jose. I think he was popping up into pockets of space. DC was able to play a little bit more on the ground at times in that game because of the water, the lack of water in that opener. But then against LA Galaxy in the cup final, it was a lot more, especially in the first half, I think, to my recollection of, of Moreno getting on the ball, drawing defenders to him, then playing it off, and just being much more of the attack threat. He had plenty of the skill on the ball, like like Echeverry to an extent, maybe less of the vision and less of the dynamic dribbling ability, but Moreno was a huge player for DC United, and you can kind of see their attack change from the first match when they didn't have him playing up front mm-hmm. in the front two to the cup final. There was a huge yeah. difference in and their front two's ability to control the ball and actually threaten the back line. And their number of backheel passes went up significantly <laughs> with Moreno. And the, <laughs> I mean, he backheeled past it. So at least six times in the final. There was a weird amount of flair, especially given how much physicality was in these games. It was like almost two-faced. Like you had physicality on one side and then you had flair in the next second. It was it was like they could continue to flip that switch. In one moment, it would be a two-footed challenge, like a reckless two-footed challenge through the water or on the field in San Jose. And then in the next second, it would be a backheel flick from Jaime Moreno or, or Echeverry would be drawing three players to him and then dribbling around them down the end line. It was so insane to me how these guys could just flip back and forth from going into battle to like taking a step back, composing themselves and then playing in a more technical fashion. So should we transition to defense and go straight into what you're just saying with the tackling? I think I think we have to, right? It would be not just if we didn't talk about it. Jordan, so many two-footed challenges. You and I texted about this, right? Like we were both watching these games and we both could not get over just how wild and physical so much of these games were. The only thing I have written down in all capital letters is tackles. Like (laughs) I started thinking about trying to relate it to like today's major league soccer. And like, if anybody got tackled the way that those players got tackled, people would lose their minds. Of course. I'm trying to think of a player at MLS. Like if they got tackled like that, like how many roles they would have to like, recover from it you know like a Neymar <laughs> yeah. role it was incredible how many bad tackles there were and how few yellow cards or fouls that were given out there was a huge discrepancy between those things right like yes fouls were called occasionally but there should have been some actual like disciplinary measures taken for some of these challenges there are two points of comparison that i kind of have for some of these tackles i just watched the united states 2-0 win over spain in the confederations cup to talk about with daryl on Mm -hmm. soccer 101 for the total soccer show and michael bradley got a red card at the end of that match maybe a lot of our listeners will remember he went in with like one foot up 
up and he got some of the ball and he was still given a red card, a harsh red card in that game against Spain at the end of the match. So even by 2009, 13 years after this match, we're seeing changes. And then in last year's MLS playoffs, Everton for RSL got a red card for a tackle. I believe it was against the Seattle Sounders in in the Western Conference playoffs at some point. And people were all up in arms about that tackle, justifiably so. Like it was a bad challenge. He was sent off. I think he was fine. There were a lot of things that went down. If we saw challenges like that in these games, and we did, nothing. Oh my gosh. Like, neither one of these teams would have any players on the field because every <laughs> single player went, left their feet at some point and two foot, two footed tackled the ball. And, um, you know, I see it a little bit more, like, I see it justified that the sliding tackles justified a little bit more in the final because of the conditions. Like, you can read the play a little bit better and try to go into a tackle and slide and use the, the wetness of the grass. Um, but even then, like there's a good tackle and there's a bad tackle. And when you're going in with one foot trying to clear the ball away or you're going in with bull studs up two footing someone like it was incredible. I just can't believe it. We saw way it's more. Really hard to believe. We saw way more of those rash challenges than we actually did structured defending. That's that's my yeah. take is we didn't see a lot of like actual defending in this game. And I recall a conversation I had with Marcelo Balboa a couple years ago uh, about a tackle um, that had happened in a Rapids game. And he was like, you know, we used to two foot tackle all the time. And like that would have never been called. And I, I looked at him like and I don't think I said anything. I just looked at him. I was like, wow, really? Like. I had no idea. And now I, I know what he's talking about. It makes sense. It makes sense. (laughs) You couldn't, like, you couldn't have played through that era without that mentality, right? Because you wouldn't have survived. Like, you wouldn't have been able to compete defensively because there was so much focus on having to cover ground, bouncing back and forth between those, those two mini games being played on the field. You had to have that mobility. You had to have that mentality to go in and win the ball to give your team a chance to play it long and then, you know, kind of play off the second ball from there. Right. Exactly. One other thing defensively that I noticed in this game, and I kind of hinted at it earlier, is just the sheer lack of structure. Right. Because we could make out these yes. formations eventually just because we were staring at the screen trying to pick them out. But it was extremely difficult to ever tell at points in these games. Oh, the Galaxy are defending in a 4-4-2. The Clash are defending in a 4-4-2. DC United are defending in a, you know, 3-5-2 or, or whatever it is. It was difficult to tell that just because it seemed like the players were always running everywhere to keep up with the pace of the ball, to make those rash challenges, being willing to leave their spots in their defensive block or in their high press or whatever it was. There was just a real lack of that structured, finalized, polished defending. To me, it felt a lot like it was 1v1 battles all over the field that um, especially in the final, I started noticing that defensively in the midfield people were chasing each other around. There was no real zonal marking. It was you you stay with your player and you follow them um, whether they have the ball or not. And what happened sometimes, I think what made it look a little bit um, hard to figure out is like then there were opportunities, right? If the ball went past the defender, say say we're talking DCU United right now and the ball's in the midfield and it's a 1v1 battle and Uh, It had just gone past another central midfielder. Well, that central midfielder would come and try to double team the ball without really any thought of like, where's the next passing lane? (laughs) And I think that that's what we we see now, right? Is if you double team the ball, you're thinking, okay, I'm trying to double team it, but I'm trying to keep them contained in this area. So then if they play backwards or if they play to this player, I know I can pressure from a place that is going to inhibit them to then uh, break the line in a productive way for the attacking team. But no, it was just... Just like, I'm going to go, 
double team the ball and I'm going to say, I'm, I'm doing, I'm doing the most work. I'm, I'm running the hardest. I'm working really hard, but then it was like one pass and not have only have they beaten that one defender in the one v one battle, but now they beat the double team and they're off going somewhere else. One thing that I like to look at when I'm watching players, especially for the first couple of times now in MLS or new guys that are coming to MLS. And I don't know if other people have used this term, but I like to think of it as smart running like how they choose to run to cut off passing angles or to cut off that next pass that you just talked about, Jordan, like the pass coming after the pass that they are tempted to go close down. People were just content to kind of run around, not like chickens with their heads cut off, because there was a purpose. It just maybe always wasn't the smartest purpose for them to actually defend in an effective fashion. I would agree with that. But I'd also one of the things that makes my me say, okay, well, maybe this is a little bit different just before these two games. One, it was the opening. We watched the opening game of the whole entire league, right? So like emotions, uh, your adrenaline, all those things are really high. And then you watch a cup final and it's kind of the same thing, right? Neither one of these games really settled at all for 20 minutes. I mean, when you go back, if you guys go back and watch this opening game of MLS, it was like pinball, the like head ball back and forth, like clearing the ball to the other side of the field. 20 minutes. It seemed like nobody had any type of possession of the ball. And Eric Winalda, I believe it was Eric Winalda, maybe it was another player who played in that inaugural game. He just talked about exactly what you said, Jordan. In a in an article, I've read one about, about this game from Sports Illustrated or from MLSsoccer.com. He's mentioned the fact that people were just so nervous. Like A lot of these guys so had never been on TV before, never playing soccer on television. He had playing for the national team, but a lot of these players, it was their first experience in a, in a you know, structured professional setting like this. It was the first big game. It was being hyped up. There were a lot of these factors. Exactly. External factors that are outside of the player's control that undoubtedly did, did do exactly what you said, Jordan, create those nerves. And that led to a lot of pinball and, you know, ping pong up and down the field, the ball moving back and forth, which again, does make it difficult to defend. Yeah. So one other thing that I think you and I wanted to do on this show Let's talk about a few different positions and how they're used differently from 1996, fast-forwarding almost 25 years, to 2020. Jordan, the biggest one that stood out for me is goalkeepers. We, You mentioned mm. a little bit about mm-hmm. how a lot of teams wouldn't play back to their goalkeeper. They were content to play the ball long and forward. The rarely, rarely did we ever see a short ball back to the goalkeeper to play out. I think in these two games, I only remember maybe, maybe two, but mostly just one sequence where the defenders actually played back to their goalkeeper with the intent of keeping the ball, moving it in possession. And that was when the Galaxy played it back to Jorge Campos, who was a Mexican national team goalkeeper who also played as a striker. So it's basically an outfield player that they're content to play the ball back to just one time over the course of 90 minutes. Like the contrast between that and what we see MLS teams doing now, LAFC with Tyler Miller last season, now Kenneth Vermeer come to mind. Bob Bradley wants these guys to play back, but Bob Bradley in 96 did not, very much did not as an assistant coach for DC want his players to play back to the goalkeeper to try to keep possession. Well, possession wasn't something, as we mentioned, it didn't seem like it was fully how these teams felt like they could win games, you know? And I think that the goalkeeping position, yes, it didn't have that it didn't have that demand to be a possession oriented player as well. Like you were the 11th man and you really played a part in how teams attacked, but, but also just goalkeeping in general. And um, the advancement of that position and the ability of these players over the last 25 years to really grow and um, 
come and claim balls off of set pieces and their presence in the box and their organization. I think that's something that stuck out to me as well. It's a totally different position than to now. I think maybe more than any other position in the starting 11, goalkeeper has changed completely. I think the defensive attributes are totally different. Like you said, they're being asked to play higher and higher up the field. I mean, when Vermeer came to LAFC, just using him as an example again, they're real concerned about him getting too far out into no man's land outside of his box. I don't think, not just because we couldn't see it in the broadcast, but I don't think these goalkeepers ever really ventured outside of their box. The 18 was their territory, and they were going to try to stay there for the most part. One, I, which team was it? I think it was LA Galaxy. They didn't even have their goalkeeper taking uh, goal kicks. It was the Galaxy. Yeah, yeah. One of the center backs took it instead of Campos. Yeah. And it just makes me think about just the distribution aspects of a goalkeeper now versus then as well. Like I think of David Bingham and the assist he had to Pavone in the opening weekend and how he literally laid that ball out on a platter. Um, perfectly from his goal box into the attacking third. Like I saw so many punts in this game, in both of these games of the inaugural game of MLS and then the, this cup final um, punts that just went straight up in there and was like, okay, go challenge for it. You know, it's just like, I'm getting it off my hands and that's, that's okay. And it was challenged and like first and second balls were huge in both of these games because um, I think that's where the battles were consistently in the midfield, just who's going to win the first and second balls. Um, But just the distribution for goalkeepers is evolved a lot. We saw a lot of what I would call purposeless punts. That's not entirely accurate just because, Like you said, there was a rationale behind it, even if that's kind of been seen as flawed more and more now. But then comparing the Galaxy from Campos in 96 to Bingham in 2020, not that Bingham is this incredible distributor, but that one play with that beautiful pass to Pavon, it's sensational, right? That's a directional long ball that's clearly intended to go down to the left wing for Pavon to get, isolate him on that side, and then allow him to move into the attacking half, into the attacking third, and score a goal. A lot of these punts were simply just hoping to win the second ball, the third ball, the fourth ball after the ball had been in the air for so long. Like you let it hang, allow your players to get around it. Like that's a classic bad youth soccer tactic essentially now. It's it's totally different. Yeah, it's so interesting. Goalkeepers is definitely one position that I had highlighted. Fullbacks is another one. Jordan, you and I had kind of talked about this a little bit off air, but fullbacks, with the exception really of Gory, who I do think resembled sort of a modern outside back or at least an outside back of the mid-2010s. We're starting to see them being used in different ways now. But a fullback who is content to get down the line, play actually some crosses in, not just wild crosses, but some actual skilled crosses with the outside of, with the, with the inside of his left foot, excuse me. But Gory of the, the six fullbacks that we watched in these games was kind of the only one who fit that modern stereotype. A lot of different uses, a lot more reserved defensively. Fullback has definitely changed between now and then as well. It's changed dramatically. And, but the biggest change I think is not in the actual position because I think these, these players would have more freedom to go forward if their teams were able to possess the ball more. Mm-hmm. Through possession, your fullbacks can get forward higher onto the field and uh, you can start to build and create over, build and create overloads, um, through just, keeping the ball and letting the play develop. And I think that was one of the things that was hardest to watch is just um, just that lack of possession. You know, that's always been something that I've just loved about the game is uh, using and manipulating the ball in numbers in order to expose the areas that you want to expose. And, um, you know, it would have been cool to see some of these outside backs that we saw playing the opportunity for them to play a more, uh, outside back role that we get to see nowadays in Major League Soccer. 
I would be so interested, and maybe we'll do this on the show someday, but to, to talk with Bob Bradley, who played a part in this game as, as an assistant coach for DC, who didn't play the most lovely, attractive style of soccer. They had moments, yes, but now with LAFC, his kind of thing is he wants to play football, as he calls it, like Barcelona, right? So where did that, where did the switch flip for him? When did that moment mm-hmm. kind of change in his mind of, this isn't the way to go. Maybe he's always thought that, but he didn't have the authority. Maybe his Chicago Fire teams played a lot differently. I don't know. But just to see the evolution of Bob Bradley, who's involved in these early games in Major League Soccer, change. Even look at how he uses fullbacks, right? Jordan, one of your favorite things is how Tristan Blackman fits in for LAFC as that right hybrid outside back, center back, inner seam. Like he has all this innovative tactical things going on with this fullback. Where was that back then? And when did he when did he realize the need for those sort of things? I'm very curious about that. Yeah, Bob, we're going to have to we're going to have to talk to you, Bob. We need you. <laughs> One other position, and we've rehashed this a little bit already, but is number 10, right? The number 10 has drastically changed. A lot has been written about that over the last you know, 20, 30 years, whatever it is. But looking at. Echeverry and looking at Cienfuegos for the Galaxy, who actually impressed me quite a bit in that match. Mm-hmm. I thought he was very good playing underneath their number nine. These guys really wouldn't exist in Major League Soccer today, at least not in the same capacity that they are then. Jordan, is there a guy in Major League Soccer now off the top of your head that you think is the closest to that sort of role? Because I have one in mind. I'm springing this on you now, but I want to see if anyone comes, <laughs> to, like, mm-hmm. comes to mind. If not, that's fine. I, I would I don't know off the top of my head who who in Major League Soccer fits best to this like maybe 1996 <laughs> old school number 10. Let's let's go to yours, Joe. And I also want to know what are the differences that you see that make you think, OK, they wouldn't fit. For me, it's Pitti Martinez right for Atlanta United. Mm-hmm. He is the closest thing in my mind to an offensive-minded number 10 who doesn't have a lot of structural defensive responsibilities. He's not really asked to do a lot of defending. Like him and Barco both really aren't huge defensive contributors when they retreat into a lower block. But he's allowed to pop up in different spaces in DeBoer's like 3-4-3 or whatever you want to call it. He's allowed to roam and to find pockets of space. The utilization of that number 10 is different because they don't play a lot of long balls up to Joseph Martinez when he's healthy or to Adam John, even now a bigger guy. But Pitti Martinez is still allowed to roam but we see a lot of flack for that at times, right? We see the defensive vulnerabilities that that creates. We see the difficulties that they have in allowing a player to just play in a free role because that's not what modern soccer is about at this point. It's about getting high up the field, winning the ball in a structured setup. You want to press man-to-man aggressively off goal kicks. So many teams are doing that. And so when you take away a player from that setup and allow him to be almost this free-loading creative player, like we're seeing at times in a very loose way with Pitti Martinez, it creates problems. We see that with Atlanta sometimes. And I think that's why we're seeing a decline in this trend of number 10s. So true. It's the way that the game has been evolving and the style of play. Now it is necessary for everybody to do the work. You know, I just, I think of uh, Columbus crew and the work that Zardes does from a defensive standpoint, even the work of a number nine is so different than it was in 96, right? Defensively. So then if you bring it back to the midfield line, like you have to add in just a little bit more extra work because you should technically be covering a little bit more ground, right? Because you are a midfielder. So yeah, defensive responsibilities have changed drastically. And that's one difficult thing for maybe why it would be hard for those types of players to play in modern MLS. And the, the number 10 profile has changed. Like Jordan, you've been doing during this weird 
actual season, off-season time, you've been doing clips of the Columbus crew, analyzing them on Twitter, which are fantastic. Everyone, you should check those out on the Columbus Clues Twitter handle. Jordan's been retweeting them as well. But you look at a guy like Lucas Zellerayan, right? He's their number 10 attacking midfielder. I'm pretty sure in one of those clips, you highlighted him taking a slight defensive angle to pin NYCFC against the sideline. We would not have seen the number 10, the attacking midfielders at this time doing those detailed defensive movements. That's another great illustration of how the position has changed. Now the needs for that position have changed in the last 20 plus years. I pick out another play this week, actually, that um, Celerion does another good counter-pressing attacking move or defensive move to lead to an eventual crew goal. But it's crazy just the differences. I would say when you watch this game, Joe, for me, defensively is where I see how different MLS is from then to now. And yes, the attacking has gotten that much bigger, but structurally and uh, responsibility wise, and you can see patterns within teams now that I was really hard for me to see um, defensively for either any three of these teams that we watched over the last week. 100%. I think the, the level of detail in which society at large analyzes soccer games has, has increased dramatically, but also the quality of defensive units and the structure that teams are putting out there is like increasing to match that demand for analytical like data and things like that that come from soccer. And so those two things are both rising like astronomically and they have risen a lot over the last, you know, X number of years since these games happen, since as we, as we even continue into the future, those things are going to continue to be in demand and coaches are going to continue to implement those sorts of things. Yeah, absolutely. Jordan, one question that I wanted to ask you again, I'm springing questions on you left and right in this episode episode okay. to kind of close out our thoughts to the show. Are there players from these 1996 games that you think would have a lot of success in MLS now? Is there one or two guys that you can think of that would really succeed and do very well in Major League Soccer in 2020? Off the top of my head, I would say Jaime Moreno. I would love to see what he would do in MLS now. I think him as a number nine and goal scorer, ability to hold the ball up. That would be really interesting to me. And then I'm trying not to go to DC United players. So I'm <laughs> go trying for it. To, go to for it. It's it fine. Um, no, I'm going to go this because I loved this player growing up. I was an outside player growing up. So uh, Kobe Jones was like my man. Yeah. right? I, I loved him. I would have loved to see Kobe Jones play in um, modern MLS with his 1v1 ability on the wing to get past players uh, like he craved that, you know, going one on one against a defender and uh, seeing what he could do in a lot of team structure in MLS right now like they want that creative player on the wings to try to get crosses off and Kobe Jones we haven't mentioned him yet on the show I'm glad you brought him up he played as that kind of right-sided attacker for the LA Galaxy in MLS Cup 96 he really almost looked to me ahead of his time a little bit like he was wanting that that structure like you're talking about he was wanting to go at people and to use his speed to beat a defender. And that's really not something we saw from almost any other wide player, whether that's the fullbacks, whether that's the outside midfielders or the wingers in these games. We didn't see a lot of guys who wanted that isolation and to just beat a player and then create in the final third. Kobe Jones wanted to put his head down. He wanted to beat you and get out into space. And I absolutely love that from him. Yeah. Well, who are your players that you would want to see? So I've got I've got three real quick. Number one is Chris Armas. He really impressed me in this MLS Cup final. Not only the goal was beautiful, but he put in defensive work too. 
I couldn't stop thinking about him, though, because his hands were tucked into his long sleeve jersey. <laughs> and that was like number one big no no for me growing up. My dad would be like, you're you have to have your hands outside your sleeves. Like, <laughs> I don't know why. Like, it made you look less intimidating. I don't know. But I just kept thinking of every time Chris Armas came up and his hands were tucked inside his sleeves. It just looked it just made me think of that memory. <laughs> well, maybe maybe the hands tucked inside the sleeves put Echeverry off his game a little bit because Armas did a really good job for large stretches of that final and controlling Echeverry in the run of play. He was kind of everywhere as a central midfielder defensively. He was able to get the ball and weave through some players in the attack. He looks like, to me, a guy that would have been that would be a very functional central midfielder in Major League Soccer now with still pretty high upside. Yeah. So Chris Armas is, is definitely one for me. Eddie Pope is another one. DC United center back. He was everywhere. He did really well controlling opposing forwards. He can cover ground. He can play the ball a little bit when DC United tried to possess. Just a really well-rounded, big athletic guy that I think would do very well in MLS now. Mm-hmm. You would pick a center back. Of course. I had to, Jordan. You already knew there was going to be one. At least I didn't lead with him, right? I gave Armas a little bit yeah. of credit. The last, <laughs> the last guy for me was Eric Winalda. I think he showed the ability to play a little bit wide in a front two, to drift wide and collect the ball on the wing, or to just be that deep threat to get in behind the back line. He looked to me like a forward that would do very well in Major League Soccer now, either for a team that likes to sit deep, maybe that's Minnesota United, who could put him up top and then just play the ball long to him instead of Amaria or Mason Toy. I think he could fit well there, or for a team that likes to hold on to the ball a little bit more. I think he could contribute either one of those teams when all those super well-rounded to me, I really enjoyed watching him. Now even thinking about how he coaches the Las Vegas Lights, I'm curious to see what elements of his playing days he puts into coaching down in USL now. So those are my three guys mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah, I like that. I think Winaldo's a good shout too. I would have, um, he popped up in my mind as someone like, oh, maybe maybe him, but I don't know. I, I liked I liked Moreno in the final. I just think that, and he's such a, both of those players, right? Really everybody we mentioned, like such iconic MLS players, um, legends of the game. So uh, I think they, I think they too would be interested to see if they could um, (laughs) do some work in modern day MLS. I completely agree. I think they would both be all for it. And if they could, they definitely would. Jordan, is there anything else that you want to get to on today's show before we close out with a call to our listeners really quick? Yeah, I want you to tell me which was your favorite jersey. Oh, boy. Okay, okay. For me, it's easy. There's no question. You might disagree. It's the Galaxy's wild kit in in the MLS Cup final. The color scheme has completely changed from, from then to now. Weird color combinations. Not the most visually pleasing, but very, very fun. Jordan, what about you? I was super into... San Jose clash when I watched the first game and then I saw the galaxies <laughs> and I was like, wow, these are great. DC United's were just like normal, you know, just like normal soccer kits. Um, but I'm going to stick with the clash because at one point the commentators, um, I think it was the play by play said, uh, with a hint of celery green on those oh jerseys. And, um, you know, anytime you can get celery green in, then um, one into the broadcast and two into a, a kit design, you know you're winning. That's an iconic broadcast moment. I miss that somehow. Jordan, I'm going to need you at least how. find it and text it to me because I've got to hear that. That's a beautiful, beautiful, tangentially related soccer thing. I love it so much. Yeah. Yeah. Um, also, I one one last thing. Um we haven't mentioned how short the shorts are, which is incredible. Oh, they're so like, short. Everybody's shirts are tucked in. They've got their shorts pulled high. It's like, 
um, you know, very, they would follow those rules, but they didn't follow the tackling rules that we <laughs> talked about earlier. But we got to talk about best hairdo, like who wins oh, man. the hair game. Okay. So for me, it's so close because I love Echeverry's do with the little like nose clip as well. That really completes the oh, look. Yeah. Oh yeah. Breathe right strips were all the rage for that DC United team. I think it's I saw huge. like three people with breathe right strips. They're on. everywhere. So that's, that's one for me. But number one, is John Doyle, center back for the San Jose Clash. Ooh, His hair was a fantastic. Flag. A great mane. I mean, I, I couldn't stop looking at it, mostly because they kept showing close-ups, but I watched it a lot. It was so thick, so curly. It just had the perfect wave to it. <laughs> yeah, his his hair. You know, I, I feel like you're dead on there. Is that your favorite as well, then? You know, it's hard, though, because... Alexi Lawless comes in oh, pretty so good. When we see him, when we see him on the Jay Leno show at halftime of that first game, um, and he's just walking out with his gigantic suit on. And then he punts the soccer ball into the crowd. Yeah, and someone catches it. Thank goodness, <laughs> I could have like taken someone's head off. Um, and then he, his suit's like four sizes too big. Yep. And his red mane is just parted down the center, and he's just like flipping it around, trying to get it away from his face, like. I just, it was, it's pretty good. It's sensational. The facial hair combined with the long red hair really did complete the look. There's too many good dudes. Too many good dudes. I think, man, that's a whole nother show, honestly, right there. Analyzing these guys' hair so much to get through. We saw a lot of it just because they kept showing (laughs) it, but I'm not even mad. Like, I didn't even notice the jerseys or the shorts because of just how insane the hair was back then. Sensational. Absolutely sensational. Sensational. So, listeners, that's all Jordan and I have for today's show. But before we end, we wanted to put out a call for listener questions. On next week's show, we're going to aim to go through and look at some broad, more general, less time-sensitive listener questions. We can't really talk about the first couple weeks of the season anymore at this point. They're too far in the past. We don't know how the season's going to play out the rest of the year. So we want to try to stay away from those games. So that said, if you have tactical questions that relate to your favorite team or to another team or just have questions you've been curious about please ask like send them to us on twitter you can reply to our new twitter handle for the show at mls assist pod you can tweet me at joe and cleats or jordan at jordangeli you can send the show an email you can get at us any number of ways but please send us your listener questions we want to go through them we want to answer your questions hoping that they're as broad and as tactical as possible or about hair who knows Absolutely. We are always willing to talk about hair or (laughs) kits that are our favorites. Uh, One thing I just want to add to that is just thank you guys for welcoming us into your lives and being excited about the content we're putting out. And we want to cater to you as much as we can, especially in this unknown time. So uh, thank you from both Joe and I. We really appreciate your guys' time and um, hope that this listener questions episode really serves you guys in, in what you hope to get out of it as well. Well said. Jordan, I think that was a great conclusion. Thank you so much for going back to 1996 with me today. I had a blast. So much fun. I The 90s. What a trip. <laughs> Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll be back again next week. 